Hello, and welcome to The Stakes. I'm your guest host, Julie Zeilinger. I'm the editor of MTV Founders, and you've heard me here on The Stakes before. Holly will be back next time to steer this politicalish podcast that is just trying to figure out what comes next like you. On our show this week, Jillian C. York tells us how to keep our digital privacy in these uncertain times, and Maria Yuen teaches us how to use her website to track what our elected representatives are doing and why it should be a lot easier to fulfill our civic duty. If you're hungry and you want to get food, you can get it in different ways. No matter the the channel I use to order my food, I still want it to taste good. Similarly, no matter the channel that I'm using to reach out to Congress, it doesn't mean that I care any more or less about that issue. After that, we'll hear from Jose Barbosa, a man who spent his time before the election campaigning for Hillary Clinton, even though he himself isn't eligible to vote. Yeah, I have to do it because, you know, my my future's at stake. And I want to become a citizen and I want to vote one day. And this is what I have to do. But first, let's hear a little history from Al Buford, who calls himself the spark of the 1966 and 1968 Chicago riots. He spoke to our podcast producer, James T. Green, when they happened to meet on an Uber drive one day this month. My first name is Al, last name Buford, that's B as in boy, U-F-O-R-D. I was the spark for the 1966 riots here in Chicago and also the 1968 riots here in Chicago. I say spark because it was, it wasn't planned, it was unintentional, and the events of the day dictated that that's how it turned out, that I was the person that the things that happened to me on those days were actually the spark that started the riot. I wasn't the one who, it wasn't intentional intentionally planned or wasn't a conspiracy of any kind. It just turned out that way. 1966, I was 13 years old. Uh, during the summer months, it was, we had a rash of days of 100 degree temperatures. And there was a lot of uh, indulging in the fire hydrants. And the day before the riots, we were in the hydrants till 11 o'clock at night. The next day, I got up, hadn't had enough, so wanted some more. Went and got my best friend. We went and opened up another hydrant. The events of the day led to some of the neighborhood people being arrested. And those people were then released after Martin Luther King went to the district police station and facilitated their release. But during that time, uh, we moved from one hydrant to another during the course of that day, and we ended up on the corner of Troop and Washburn Streets in the projects. And at that point, we were just kind of milling around. There were probably a couple hundred people just standing around talking about the events of that day where there were confrontations with the fire department, there were confrontations with the police department where those people went to jail. So we were just kind of milling around. And we had a hydrant on, but not spraying across the streets as we did earlier in the day. 
and a ice cream truck came down the street and he got stuck in a hole right in front of that hydrant which kind of angered some of us how dare you block our fun but he had to leave and go make a phone call to let somebody know that his truck had broke down while he was gone I was leaning over the hydrant with my hands cupped spraying the water into this guy's truck there were ice cream cones floating in the street things of that nature I was blindsided by a white police officer who came snatched me grabbed me threw me and when he threw me he hollered you little nigger. Instantly, people that were standing around started throwing bricks and bottles at this police officer and he had to run for his life. That went from a side street to Roosevelt Road, which was the main street, and that's when they started looting the stores. That's when, the, when and where the riots of 1966 started. 1968, two days after Martin Luther King died. I was a student at Richard Crane High School on the west side. Our Caucasian principal called an assembly. And during that assembly, he alluded to the fact that he felt like Martin Luther King was doing us more harm than good. Well, at the time I was a member of the African American Social Club at the high school myself and some other students and the, the teacher that was the head of that African-American group decided to call a meeting. To my recollection, um, Bertine White of Earth, Wind & Fire was a part of that meeting. And during that meeting, we decided that we were going to walk out. That was during a time of rallies and peace marches and walking out. So we decided we were gonna walk out, but we had to inform the school that we were going to do so. So I came up with the suggestion that and volunteered for that duty which entailed my going around to every classroom during that next period and holding up a sign saying that we were going to walk out at the end of the period. When that bell rang to our surprise, it was pandemonium, and things got out of control. The students tore the school up, and it went from Crane High School to Madison Avenue, where they started looting, and that's when Madison Avenue was burnt down, and the National Guard were called in. And that's a brief synopsis of my involvement with the Chicago riots. That was MTV News podcast producer James T. Green with Al Buford. Now, MTV music writer Hazel Sills asks Jillian C. York of the Electronic Frontier Foundation how we can protect our data in digital spaces from surveillance. 
Jillian, the reason I wanted to talk to you today is obviously government surveillance was definitely an issue before this election. Uh, but I think for many Americans right now, their fears have sort of escalated now that Trump is our president-elect. And I'm just interested, why is it so important right now for people to get serious about things like cybersecurity and protecting what information they share? Sure. So, I mean, I think any time is a good time to, to get excited about it um, and protect your information. But I do think that there are, you know, particular risks with this next administration that could come up um, around government surveillance. Um, that said, you know, I think it's also important to note that a lot of surveillance happens much closer to home. You mentioned that uh, it's important for people to remember that threats uh, regarding surveillance are actually quite close to home. Can you expand on that and tell me what you mean by that? Sure. So, I mean, we do know about the NSA surveillance from the government, of course, but um, a lot of people aren't thinking about the other ways, the other people in their life that could be looking at them. So, for example, you know, we look at... Um, Privacy for teenagers is a really simple one. A lot of teenagers might have parents that are trying to look at their communications, and that may be okay, but, you know, some, some folks aren't in safe situations. Um, you know, domestic violence victims, that's another area where we found it really important uh, for people to know, you know, what, what kind of tools they're using and, and who might be watching them. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, some of those tools that would be good for people to start using? Sure. So, I mean, I think, you know, there are a lot of different tools out there, and so users should definitely think about what their, what we call a threat model, what that is. Um, and that means, you know, asking yourself questions like, who might be, who might want to get a hold of my communications or my data? Um, you know, what kind of, what's the realistic threat that I'm under? Um, and so, once you've kind of answered those questions, you can, you can figure out what it is that you really need to protect. Um, but some of the popular tools out there that I think, you know, everyone should consider, everyone should, should look into um, downloading a, a communications or messaging app that uses end-to-end -end encryption. Um, a few of those are Signal. WhatsApp also uses it now. Um, there's a great new tool called Wire. It's at wire.com, um, as well as, you know, a handful of other tools um, that, are, that are both existing and emerging. Um, Tor is a great thing that people can use. It uh, is a tool that anonymizes your connection to the web, so you can um, research information, look things up without being worried about your internet service provider or your government um, looking, at, looking at what you're doing. Um, and then, of course, I think people should also consider encrypting the, the actual devices that they use. So, for example, iPhone comes with encryption uh, by default, but you have to make sure that it's turned on. A lot of Android phones, or maybe all Android phones, have this now as well. Um, and same with your computers. You should definitely look into uh, encrypting your hard drive on your computers, which is also another thing available with many, many um, uh, machines that are out there today. Mm -hmm. When you're talking about, you know, apps like Signal and using things like Tor, for people who don't understand um, what end-to-end -end encryption is, can you sort of explain what encryption is and why it makes messages safer? Sure. So when you're connecting, uh, when you're communicating with someone, um, there are a number of different places, points in the network at which surveillance could be taking place. Um, so that could be, like I said, at your internet service provider level, could be at the, the federal level, um, it could be, you know, the, the library or the school that you're accessing the internet from. And so when you use end-to-end -end encryption, what that does is it makes sure that uh, nobody in, in, none of those nodes in the network can intercept your communications. It's locked on your 
end and the person on the other end um, can can both verify your identity through these through these different platforms that that uh, utilize end-to-end encryption. Um, they can verify your identity, and they can also be sure um, once they've done that that uh, nobody along the way can intercept uh, yeah can intercept communications. I mean, most people might know a little bit about why, you know, protecting yourself and your information against, you know, surveillance in digital spaces is important, um, but they might not do much about it. Um, And I'm just curious, like, why do you think that is? Is it because people, you know, ultimately don't know the extent of how uh, the government might be looking at their personal information or is there just not enough information out there? I think there's a few reasons. I mean, you know, I think that there's there are people who are not aware, but as for those who are aware that the surveillance is happening, I think that there are kind of two common issues that arise. One is the argument of, I have nothing to hide. Um, and then the other, of course, is, um, you know, just being overwhelmed by all of the information um, and all of the different tools that are available and just really not knowing where to start. So I think those are two different arguments. To the first point, I would say, you know, the I have nothing to hide argument is really interesting now as we as we move forward into a Trump presidency, because a lot of people who felt that way under Obama might feel differently under Trump. Um, and that sort of uh, says a lot about, you know, why we should this government surveillance, uh, no matter who's in office. But to the latter point, you know, I think for those who are overwhelmed, there's a great guide called Security in a Box that's available online in a number of different languages. Um, There are other guides and tools. There's an app now called Umbrella, um, which offers a lot of different security information aggregated from from a number of different guides. Uh, So there is clearly written, um, you know, easily understood information that can help people make smarter decisions about how they secure their communication. Well, great. Thank you so much uh, for taking some time out of your day to answer all of my questions about better protecting yourself against the government watching your every move. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. That was MTV Music Writer and Lady Problems co-host Hazel Sills speaking with Jillian C. York. Jillian is the Director for International Freedom of Expression at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, a nonprofit protecting civil liberties in the digital world. EFF made a website called Surveillance Self-Defense with more information that you can find at ssd.eff.org. UN wants you to engage in our political system more than just every four years. With her website, Issue Voter, you can learn about legislation before it passes on Capitol Hill, tell federal reps what you think, and track how they vote, all from your smartphone. Podcast producer James T. Green talks to Maria about why she's trying to change the political landscape by making it more accessible. founder of Issue Voter. So can you tell me a little bit about Issue Voter? Sure. It's a website that allows people to stay informed year-round on laws that Congress is passing. We summarize them, have 
what the opponents are saying, what the proponents are saying, related news for context. And then one click sends your opinion to your rep, and you get a profile on the site that tracks throughout the year the percentage of time that your rep is voting how you would want them to vote. And our mission is to give everyone a voice in our democracy by making civic engagement accessible, efficient, and impactful. So one of the reasons I feel really passionately about the need to connect politicians to their constituents is because I feel like right now there are so many voices that aren't being heard and there's a moderate majority that's not being heard. And we can even see that with the fact that 40% of people are registered as independents and that number has grown and is growing. I think that's something that we're all feeling and you hear a lot about the polarization in Congress and so it's important for more voices to make it make their way to their elected officials so that they can have representation there. And it's not just the very loud, polarizing voices that everyone's hearing. So I'm curious, how did you come up with this idea and why are you the one to make Issue Voter happen? I got the idea a long time ago, actually, when I was a campaign manager in Iowa. And I had never lived in a swing state before that. And seeing the amount of focus on elections was almost undescribable. It was unlike anything I had ever seen. I mean, literally every single television commercial was a political ad. We had people like John Kerry come to our small town to do fundraisers for us. I met Joe Biden at a press conference and there were probably 10 people there. And so outside of Iowa, I don't think people get that kind of access. I mean, I, it's people I probably wouldn't even get a meeting with in D.C. Um, so it, it's just this very distinct memory. I was sitting at my computer thinking, wow, there's so much focus on this election, yet people don't necessarily know what happens throughout the year. And at that time, I thought, surely someone will create this. The technology will get there, and there will be this amazing site that I'll be able to use where I can track what my reps are doing all year. And years went by, and the idea was still in my mind. It was like one of these ideas that you just couldn't shake. Um, And I, I still felt such a strong frustration whenever I thought about it that I still felt like nothing existed. And it really just it really just got to this point of frustration where I felt like I'm just going to make it. I'm going to create it. It doesn't exist. I'm going to do it. So why am I the right person to do this? I think it's because I have a mix of both private sector and government experience. I've worked in investment banking. I went to Wharton. But I also have been a staffer and a campaign manager. And so I'm one of these people that has actually seen both sides. So you kind of talked a little bit about like how you came up with the idea. Um, so how do you feel that like this particular resource stands out versus, let's say, I hop on Twitter and somebody's like, oh, yeah, if you just call your representative, like do this. Like, how does issue voters stand out? So I can talk about how, specifically how I think it differs from petitions. Yeah. Because I think even right now we're seeing a lot of petitions going going go around. And petitions are... There's some good aspects with petitions where they make an issue more well-known. The thing that is really awful about them is that they don't work. So they have no impact. Um, And part of that is because it's really just a list of names. And sometimes petitions are even on issues that aren't even being proposed or talked about in Congress. And when people sign them, they also often don't actually find out what happened. So I've had a lot of people tell me, oh, yeah, I did sign a petition, but I never actually heard the result. And so what Issue Voter does is, you know, it really allows people to voice their opinions on actual laws, 
to their actual rep and then to see what happened. So when Congress votes, people will get a notification that says that this is how you voted, this is how your rep voted, and this is whether or not the law actually or the bill actually passed. The thing that really attracted me to Issue Voter is the design. So can you talk to me a little bit about what went into the process of making something that is, in a way, a social service? Um, It's something that's used by everyone with very quick smartphones to people with low cell phone connections. So what did the actual building process go into and the research process that went into like making this website an accessible resource? Yeah, that's a great question. And it actually, it's a good point because it is a website. It is not an app. And it was a conscious decision not to be an app because we didn't want to have that barrier for people to have to download something. And we didn't want to, we also recognize that you, most people have 50 or 100 apps on their phone and they use five every day. And so we want to be where people already are, which are things like email or in their news or text. So right now we're delivering the alerts via email. So when you get an alert, you can click on the button and it literally sends your opinion to your rep without you even having to log into the site. One thing that's great about it, and I think it's a point of validation for the site, is that people volunteer their feedback because they like it and they want to help us improve. And when users are telling us what they want to see change or improvements to the site, we can start to see patterns. And so if something is mentioned enough, we can prioritize that and realize that, okay, we really need to do this. Enough people are asking for it. Um, there are aspects just like any any site, any business where you have to be really focused and you can't necessarily, unfortunately, take all the user f- feedback and act on it right away. So, so you brought up a good point earlier, and I was just curious, um, what kind of feedback are you getting from different people using Issue Voter? Yep. So from the staffers of the reps, we get usually one of two things. On one side, we have people that reach out and say, we'd like to know who this constituent is, which I think is great. And we're happy to connect them. Um, and we want to make those connections. Um, that's that's exactly why we're, why we're doing this. And we also really appreciate when the staffer reaches out and asks for that information because it shows that they're being responsive and they really want to know who their constituents are and, and, and uh, make that connection with them. On the other hand, we have staffers sometimes that say, we want people to contact us through our website. And that's one of my pet peeves because in order for someone to contact a rep through their website, they have to know first of all, that there's even a reason to contact the rep. Second of all, who their rep is and you know, look up that information every single time or find their way to their website somehow. And then three, fill out a web form every single time they want to send an opinion or ask a question. And it's just not efficient. At this moment, um, a lot of people are participating in these visual signifiers of you know putting a safety pin on or wearing some type of things to let people know that they are an ally. So I'm curious, like, what your thoughts are on these sort of, like, now visual signifiers um, acting um, as, like, a kind of, like, flag that, hey, I'm a safe person. Like, what are your what are your thoughts on that right now? So I think it's, I don't think it's a bad thing. Um, I think it's nice to see a visual sign of unity and that you can kind of see that people believe in the same thing and there are other people like you out there. Of course, I think that there's more, there's always more that you can do than, than that. Um, and I felt, I've always sort of even just felt that way about voting. Um, so there's 
always before an election, especially presidential election, a big push to get people registered and to get some get them to vote. And again, I don't think that's a bad thing. That is a great thing. But there's more that people can do. The viral tweets, it, it sort of it, it, um, it hit a nerve, I'll be honest, because it, it was talking to people about calling and doing phone calls. And again, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing to call, your, to call but it's, it's not scalable. Like, how are we ever going to have everyone's voices heard if the only way to contact reps is through calling them? There's not enough time in the day. Staffers don't have time to deal with that. Um, it's, it's much more efficient, frankly, for them to be able to do it through a website. Things that you can do in the political realm. So reaching out to reps, meeting them, either you know having meetings in person when they're in town, um, going to town hall meetings, that kind of thing. Um, in, also in the political realm, I think something that people can do and not enough people are doing is run for office. So as we know, there, the majority of people in office are incumbents. And I think that we definitely need some fresh blood in there and, and people to run um, in their party's primaries. So that's, that's something else. And then I think outside of like the so-called political realm, people can do things like volunteer with nonprofits that are working on issues that they care about and on the same side of them as them on those issues or even donating. So some people might not have the time to volunteer or the time to do all these other things, but maybe they can make a donation, which still helps further causes that they care about. Where do you see the legacy of Issue Voter? Where do you see it existing in like five to 10 years, especially as something that is a digital tool? A lot of times we see digital tools kind of come up, go away after a couple of years. Where do you see this going? I want to see it. I, I want Issue Voter to be a site that people feel like they didn't even know they needed, but once they had it, they couldn't imagine not having it. So almost similar to the early days, I think, of social networks. I don't think people were necessarily sitting around and thinking, I need a profile of myself online. I need a profile page. And I need to connect with other friends of mine and their profile pages. People weren't thinking that. But now that we have things like Facebook, I don't. I think it's hard to imagine a world without without that, without social networks. And so similarly with civic engagement, I think that once people start becoming more civically engaged and realizing how many laws are passing every single week that affect their lives, that they'll think, oh my gosh, I can't believe I wasn't involved before and that I didn't know about these things. Um, and, I, and to your point about, you know, things kind of are spiky, like you see these websites come and then they die and then they go away. I think one, one problem is so many of the, these apps and sites that I've heard about recently focus on the election. And so it's important to really focus on what happens the rest of the year, not just the election. If you're hungry and you want to get food, you can get it in different ways. You can go to the restaurant, you can pick up the phone, put in an order and go pick up your food, or you can have it delivered through something like Seamless or like their own, their own app. And no matter the, the channel I use to order my food, I still want it to taste good. And so similarly, no matter the channel that I'm using to reach out to Congress, it doesn't mean that I care any more or less about that issue. So, Maria, thanks for coming by and talking with me. Um, if people are interested in more ways that they can you know, put in the work, how can they find out more about Issue Voter and yourself? So to find out about Issue Voter, you simply go to issuevoter.org and sign up and start being engaged. And if anyone is interested in reaching out to me, our email is there and, and we read all the messages that people send. Maria, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. 
That was MTV News podcast producer James T. Green with Maria Yuen, the founder of Issue Voter. This piece featured music by Let Me Know You on a Toll. Arizona has a history of racial discrimination, especially when it comes to voter rights. Promise Arizona is one organization in the state that works towards harnessing the power of the Latino community in Arizona. Jose Rabosa is a volunteer for Promise Arizona and has spent the past four years activating the community by canvassing and registering people to vote. Barbosa was born in Guadalajara, Mexico, and he came to the United States with his family when he was only four years old. He is undocumented. Friend of the Stakes and podcast host Nate DeMeo talked to Barbosa about his experience growing up in Arizona and why he is politically engaged. I came here when I was uh, four years old, 1986, I believe. Uh, my mom told me, hey, you know, you're going on a trip with your grandpa. And I was like, oh, OK, whatever, you know, I'm a trip. I was like a little four year old kid. You know, it's, it's hot in Phoenix. I went to school here from kindergarten through 12th grade, you know. And so when you were in uh, like 12th grade and you're in high school, did you and your friends talk about your status? In high school, my parents told me not to tell anybody that I was undocumented because there's a fear of retaliation, a fear of um, somebody telling the school that I was undocumented and there goes uh, immigration for me or something, you know. I think it was my junior year, I was uh, look, getting to look for a job or something and and then, because um, my friend, he was looking for a job as well. And then that's when he, he was writing everything out and I was like, okay, so what's this? He was like, this is where you have to put your social security number. And I was like, do I have one? Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I'm a document. I don't have anything like that. And he was like, there you go. You can't get a job in this country. So that's the thing, because you're sitting there and you're undocumented, but you are allowed to go to school. Yeah. And so you're essentially just, you know, hang, just living the life of any other American teenager. Yeah. But you're also starting to stare down the barrel of being like 18 and graduating. Yeah. And what does it feel like? What are you thinking at that point? It, was just, it feels bad because you're like, what's next? Are the doors closing? You know, my senior year, I see all these military recruits and this and that. And, and I g went up to one and I told him, hey, you know, I want to be in the military. Like, okay. I was like, oh, well, I don't have any papers. He was like, I'm sorry, man. You yeah. can't, you can't, you know. I was like, oh, okay. So I was like, you know, that hurt inside. So and what did it feel like your options were? I don't know. They, I didn't, there was no options because I was like, I can't go to school. I can't work. What do I do? You know? And then SB 1070 came around. And ex explain what that is for people who might not know. SB 1070 is a law that an anti-immigrant hate bill that um, happened back in 2010 when the police were able to ask you for your citizenship, the papers, you know, the show me your papers law that was going to target my community, my family my family's undocumented you know so two years later that bill was uh cut off blocked everything but the show me your papers thing the police could still ask you for your papers and they could still call but immigration won't come mm -hmm. you know and then that's at the same time when daca happened which is daca is a program that um president barack obama made for 
young people who came in this country with no choosing of their parents. Right. You know, they have good moral character. They have good... They went to school, you know, they're trying to do better for the community, you know, somebody like me, you know, somebody like myself and other people who want a better opportunity. And that's when I decided, you know what, let's get involved in the community. Let's get involved in the community. And um, I got involved and started hitting doors, this and that. A 12-year-old teenager trained me how to do this how to how to canvas and how to how to to knock on doors and everything and you know i still talk to him today yeah yeah you know he's i think he's like 17 18 years old right now and and so now you know a number of years later you are um essentially a full-time uh organizer not yet a full-time employee but you're doing this full-time yeah Yeah, i'm doing this because i care about my community i care about this country and i want to see what happens next and i want what everyone wants, which is immigration reform for more than 11 million people to possibly 12 million undocumented people, like my dad and my mom and stuff, yeah. Now, your parents uh, who told you, you know, not to talk about your status when you were in high school, now you are out here, um, first of all, you're talking at the moment to MTV. You are like the centerpiece of an article about Promise Arizona in The New Yorker, you know, such that when I first met you, you're like, yeah, people know who I am. But so there are a lot of people out there who know that there's an undocumented guy who works at Promise Arizona. And do you see that that's a brave thing to do? Like, I'm a volunteer, but like, you know, I, somebody, I have to do it because, you know, my my future at stake and I want to become a citizen and I want to vote one day and this is what I have to do. Now when you are out there and you are asking people, encouraging people to vote, um, when you yourself can't vote, yeah. just tell me how that feels. It, I just have to inspire that person, you know, hey, you can't vote. I, they are, yeah, I can't vote, but I'm helping, I want to help you because you are my voice you are my voice and you can vote i'm telling you please vote for me you know uh, we're talking on the friday before election day um you know you're Five days till election day you're working your tail off you are you know i've seen you register voters i've seen you um uh, make sure a woman used a black pen instead of a blue pen. I've seen you explain election law to people. I've seen you, uh, you know, I, I was with you when you learned you could drop off, legally drop off ballots and yeah. drop off some ballots immediately thereafter. And so you're keeping yourself busy. And unlike a lot of people who are watching and the news about the election and stewing about the election, you're out there doing it. And that's fantastic. But at the same time, there's a lot that hangs in the balance on Tuesday night for you. Yeah. And so w- give me the gut check. How are you feeling right now? What do you, what do you, when you picture Tuesday night, what are you picturing? I'm anxious and I'm like, I'm scared at the same time. I don't know what's going to happen. You know, that's why I'm doing this. I want others to get registered to, I want others to vote, you know, because it's important. You know, I still haven't um, had the time to meet up with my grandpa because, you know, He's busy, but I want peop- I want the most people that can to vote. I want everybody to vote. You know, you know, if they don't want to vote for president, then local elections. 
you know we have a sheriff here in Arizona named Sheriff Joe Arpaio and he's he's like a little Trump right there you know and he's been separating our families for years and we want us to stop thanks so much for talking to us my privilege That was Nate DeMeo in conversation with Jose Barbosa, a volunteer for Promise Arizona. They spoke five days before the election. We called Barbosa up to see how he's feeling now and to hear what's next. The night of the election, we were hopeful because, you know, we we didn't think that result was going to happen. Everybody, even the media didn't think that was going to happen. The thing that was, like, really sad was just the families that were there at the viewing party they were crying because you know they this was going to affect them it hurt the community when chris kobach was appointed by president-elect trump because it took us back to 2010 when sb 1070 was signed here in arizona that devastated so many families it devastated business here in Arizona because nobody wanted to work with Arizona because we were so anti-immigrant and I feel I feel optimistic you know uh, myself and I'm undocumented I have no status here in the country like I, I told myself after the election if Hillary would have won you know I would go start my process of becoming a dreamer again and uh, after the election happened it hit me. I was like, wow, like, this is, this is serious, you know. Um, President-elect Trump said he was going to terminate the deferred action program that would have granted me a work permit to stay in the country legally and work, have a driver's license, and also go to, the, go to school. So right now, I'm currently, I, I'm still, I want to know what I can do. I don't know if I still can qualify for DACA, but I want to keep fighting with all the other undocumented people in my community. That was Jose Barbosa, an undocumented 24-year-old who is fighting for Latino political power with Promise Arizona. Thanks again to Nate DeMeo for bringing us that tape. Please go find the Memory Palace at the top of everyone's best podcasts ever lists. Finally, Marcus Ellsworth, our poet in residence, did something a little different for us this week. He wrote an essay noticing how people have been reacting to President-elect Trump and suggesting how and why we need to continue to push forward. I'm sure you've seen the reactions since the results came in on election night. The protests, the marches, the occasional riot. Reports of hate crimes from vandalism to assault where Trump's name has been barked at victims or spray-painted like a sigil warding against progress. Many of us are speculating just how far this Trump-led Republican majority government will roll back our rights. Rights like abortion access, marriage, trans equality, 
and defense from open discrimination for any reason. Some are wondering just what we can do in the face of what appears to be a much bolder white supremacist population who feels validated by this presidency. How do we push back? How do we hold our ground? What will protect folks who are targets for hate? When will this get better? Where did we go wrong? That's a lot to process. So let's start smaller. Let's start with you. Take a deep breath and really assess how you are doing. Accept whatever feelings of frustration, anger, fear, anxiety, or even apathy you may be having about the prospect of Trump's presidency. Your feelings, whatever they may be, are valid because they are yours. This is a particularly hard time for Muslims, immigrants, women, queer people, and people of color living in America. If you are a member of any, several, or all of those communities, you likely have a tremendous amount of concern right now. If you aren't, then you have significantly less skin in this game. But you may still be very worried about the future for a number of reasons. You might wonder what you can do in this very moment. You may wish to take action and make your voice heard. Perhaps there's a burning need to defend yourself and others who feel at risk right now. Good. It's good that you have that urge. You may have changed your profile pic or started wearing a safety pin to show that you are one of the safe ones. You want to put yourself out there as someone who folks can talk to, and that's nice. It's a kind gesture. But what does it accomplish? If you've joined an impromptu protest, it's great that you're trying to direct your energy, but what will you do when the protest ends? What are your next steps? See, these are examples of immediate short-term responses. Safety pins make the wearer feel good and may, on occasion, make someone else feel a little safer. Maybe. But you need to do more than give yourself a badge and hope that serendipity will put you in the right place at the right time. Spontaneous protests get attention and clearly illustrate the unrest in our nation, but without principles and organization behind them, the momentum can dissipate and be lost to the speculation of outside observers. In short, do more. The time for doing the bare minimum to speak up for justice or simply react in the moment has passed. Now we need to come together across all of our movements, center the needs of all marginalized people, and organize together for the safety, health, and survival of all our people. That means seeing and hearing each other clearly. You can reach out to the folks who have been organizing in your cities and states for the rights of oppressed people. They've been at this for a while, and most likely have some ways you can plug in and help get the work done. Get outside of your comfort zone. Contact LGBTQ organizations, even if you are cisgender and straight. When a black organization puts out a call for non-black co-conspirators, answer that call. If Muslims in your area are being harassed, reach out to see if there is a way you can help answer ignorant hate with love and truth. Arm yourself with knowledge of resources, organizations, hotlines, and information that can help undocumented people and trans folks who are afraid that they may lose everything. Look for the intersections where organizations are working for all people. And most importantly, work on yourself and the circles that you already move in. 
It's time to have all of those uncomfortable conversations you've been putting off because you thought they were too much trouble. That racist aunt who doesn't trust Mexicans. Your friends who think trans people are mentally ill. Your pastor who preaches that marriage equality somehow undermines their church. Your cousin that says the need for an abortion reflects poorly on a person's character. You need to talk to your people. Especially those who knew their vote would throw so many other people under the bus. Even those who voted because of that. They got us here. They demonstrated that democracy works for the majority. And when the majority cares little for the oppressed, the price can be high. How do you have those conversations and open eyes to the real-life struggles of others? Start by trying. Really trying. Inform yourself as much as you can and talk to folks who walk this road for justice every day. But ultimately, it's up to you and yours to get your people organized for progress. If you have been engaged and working hard for justice, don't lose heart. Your work has not changed. Not really. America just pulled off its mask and decided to bare its teeth in a way that some see as a friendly smile, but you see the fangs. You knew of them before November 8th. Keep organizing. Keep lifting up your communities. Keep moving forward and welcome all of those folks who just woke up. And remember that no one showed up for this work with all of their principles and knowledge in order. Nor is anyone perfect. There are as many paths to the work for justice as there are people who have ever put their feet to the streets to get us free. However, we can help each other by pointing out the wisdom of those who have paved the way. We all have so much work to do. That starts with you and ends with our collective freedom. So take the time to take care of yourself. Offer care to each other. Share your feelings, your experience, your concerns, your needs, and your strength. If you need some time to get yourself together, that's fine. Just put a safety pin in it as a sign to yourself that you need to get to work. That was Marcus Ellsworth, our poet in residence, and those were the stakes. I'm Julie Zeilinger, stepping in for Holly Anderson. We'll be taking time off for Thanksgiving next week, but don't panic. Holly will be back in two weeks. This episode of The Stakes was produced by Michael Catano, James T. Green, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailovic for the MTV Podcast Network, with additional engineering by Little Everywhere. You can subscribe to this and all of our other shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts.